Section 8. The Conferences. Quote, the curriculum of domination is political. Subtly or blatantly, by commission or omission, it teaches racism, sexism, and classicism. End quote. Quote, relating the self to itself is no easy matter in a culture that systematically erodes subjectivity. Part of the cure entails getting back to the body, relating self to self. End quote. The University of Rochester Conference, 1973. The conference which would signal that the reconceptualization of the American curriculum field was underway was held in Rochester, New York, May 3rd through 5th, 1973, sponsored by the University of Rochester's College of Education, the dean of which was James I. Doy. With the assistance of Paul Clore, William Pinar invited those whose work he considered to contain the major thematic and methodological elements of a possible reconceptualization of the curriculum field. These scholars included Robert Sturratt, Donald Bateman, Maxine Green, Dwayne Hubner, James B. McDonald, William J. Pilder, and Pinar himself. Punctuating these general sessions were small group sessions in which participants worked through, in their own terms, the significance of their papers. These small groups were led by Charles Beagle, Paul R. Clore, Eleanor E. Larson, William T. Lau, Robert L. Osborne, Francine Shushat Shaw, and George Willis. The essays and reports on the small groups written by the leaders and the general session papers given by those listed above were edited by Pinar and published the following year as Heightened Consciousness, Cultural Revolution, and Curriculum Theory, the Proceedings of the Rochester Conference. The theme of the conference was Heightened Consciousness and Cultural Revolution, terms that Pinar later admitted made one wince today. This theme, however, did link curriculum with developments in the political and cultural spheres, and this linkage continued, if in different form, throughout the 1970s and in the field today. Approximately 100 scholars from the United States and Canada came to Rochester, New York that May. In addition to the general sessions attended by all, the registrants met in small groups to discuss the issues speakers had raised. Paul Clore, who chaired one of the small groups, described the sense of the conference. Quote, we can see something of the personal struggle involved the despair, the paradoxes, the excitement, the unfinished questions yet to be faced. Sensing this struggle gives us courage to try to make the pilgrimage ourselves. Not all of us will finally want to do this, but some will. What more can one ask but that those who do want to join hands and move ahead? The road is far from clear, but the Rochester Conference points out some directions. End quote. Clore's comments captured the sense not only of the Rochester Conference, but foreshadowed the remainder of the decade as well. The traditional paradigm of the field had broken down, and a sense of being adrift would pervade the field for several years, the present residue of which is a sense of confusion for those living in the generational divide. This resulted in part from the uncertainty as to what form the reconceptualization would take. Indeed, some questioned if the field would survive at all. The field did survive, of course, and it emerged from the 1970s a revitalized and considerably more complex field than it was in May 1973 the Rochester Conference would be the first in a series that would be sponsored by various universities until 1978, when the establishment of JCT, at first the Journal of Curriculum Theorizing, now JCT, an interdisciplinary journal of curriculum studies, would initiate a series of conferences organized by the editors of the journal, conferences chaired by William F. Pinar and Janet L. Miller, editor and managing editor, respectively, of the JCT. The Rochester Conference bears closer scrutiny as it expressed what would become the major themes of the reconceptualization. Pinar summarized these themes in the preface to the proceedings. Four issues kept making themselves heard, and I comment impressionistically and briefly. A. Confidence in schools as liberating institutions. Pilder is unequivocal that schools are hopeless. 
Bateman seemed similarly unhopeful. Schools are extensions of the oppressive, totalitarian, capitalist superstructure, and as such can only be expected to continue sexism, classicism, and racism. Hubner seems similarly pessimistic. B. Shape of Future Reform In part, it must be theoretical, involving a reworking of the language we employ to describe phenomena associated with curriculum. It must be political. It must as well be psychological. C. Commitment to Public Education Pilder's paper clearly undercuts the traditional commitment to public educational institutions, although other papers were not as explicit. One sensed a frustration, at times almost a hopelessness, at the possibility of significant reformation. D. Future of scientism in the field of education. It is not that the speakers dismissed scientism. They ignored it. End quote. The reconceived field would move ahead in a direction quite different from the painful path public schools took in the 1970s and 1980s, and in ways not inspired by mainstream social science, but by scholarship associated with the humanities, the arts, and social theory. Schraub's emphasis on the practical is criticized. In the tense atmosphere of high expectation, Robert Surratt gave the first paper on Thursday night, May 3rd. In this overview of the field, he responded pointedly and persuasively to Schraub's criticism of the traditional field. Strat disagreed, quote, with Schwab's conclusion that we ought to call a moratorium on theoretical speculation and devote our attention to dealing with more practical affairs, like the maintenance and improvement of existing institutions and practices, end quote. He continued, quote, Schwab's documentation of the incompleteness of contemporary theory leads him to recommend a moratorium on theory. It leads me to the opposite recommendation. Our educators need more stimulation to reflect upon the nature of man and society so that they can perceive the underlying significance of the confusing circus of daily experiences they face. The one-dimensional and fragmented theory we suffer with at present seems to require a much larger effort to develop a comprehensive theory, rather than a need to flee the task of theory in desperation and immerse ourselves in the perhaps more satisfying but short-sighted tasks of solving immediate problems." End quote. Further, Sturratt argued that Schwab's recommendation that curriculum scholars move directly into the arena of pragmatic problem-solving in the schools, conducting much more empirical research on what actually goes on in the classrooms, is like asking architects to leave the drawing board, replace them with hammers and saws, and become carpenters, construction foremen, and building contractors. Sturratt insisted, quote, The political negotiation and management of educational programs is the job of teachers, administrators, and central office supervisors, not of curriculum theorists. They may and should be consulted, but they should not be called on to perform the tasks of frontline personnel. Sturratt also criticized Schraub's emphasis upon incremental reform. He wrote quote, Besides confusing the roles of theoretician and practitioner, this suggestion could be dangerously short sighted. When one becomes engaged in identifying and repairing frictions and failures in the school organization and programs, it tends to absorb all of one's attention. The practitioner whose immersion in the immediate task of keeping the ship afloat has little time to engage in frontier research. Were curriculum theorists to abandon their proper role and engage in the practical problems of maintenance and incremental institutional reform, schools would blindly drift into obsolescence at a time when our planetary survival may depend on the development of a whole new set of cultural attitudes and a different sense of national purpose. While acknowledging the accuracy of Schwab's criticism of the many shortcomings in curriculum theories, I strongly oppose his recommendation that curriculum theorists abandon theory and divert their efforts to the realm of the practical. On the contrary, his critical analysis of the limitations of current theory should spur efforts to develop more comprehensive curriculum theory. End quote. Sturratt's criticism and Schwab's proposals intersected with Clybard's characterization of the traditional field as atheoretical. 
Both Sturat and Kleibard provided important support for the development of a sophisticated theoretical wing of the field that would emerge from the 1970s movement to reconceptualize the field. Curriculum as Political Text One strand of theory central to the field by the end of the decade of reconceptualization was that strand which understood curriculum as political text. Donald Bateman summarized the state of political scholarship at this early stage in a ringing indictment of the political status quo. After a scathing review of the teacher-proof aspects of the National Curriculum Reform Movement in the 1960s, Bateman reviewed sympathetically the neo-romantic criticism written by John Holt, Paul Goodman, and others. He went on to charge, quote, We begin to see that the central and primary theme of our age is domination, domination of the poor by the rich, blacks, browns, reds, and yellows by whites, women by men, students by teachers. It is called neocolonialism imperialism, racism, classicism, sexism, all different, though alike, related and interrelated in obvious and subtle ways, end quote. Further, he employed Freirian, the internationally acclaimed Brazilian educator Paulo Freire, mentioned earlier, see chapters 5, 12, and 14, language to assess the political role of the school. Quote, the pedagogy of domination mythologizes reality. The pedagogy of liberation demythologizes it. There is no way to be neutral. No way to be apolitical. Schooling is not neutral politically. It takes place in an institution designed and operated by those in power to serve those who will come into power to teach each child to accept his preassigned place. End quote. Next, in one sentence, Bateman would anticipate political scholarship for the next 20 years. Quote, and so the curriculum of domination is political, subtly or blatantly, by commission or omission. It teaches racism, sexism, and classicism. End quote. Like the political scholars, see chapter 5, who would follow him, Bateman denounced humanistic education as insufficiently political. Quote, Racism, sexism, classicism, those deeply internalized social values, are at the root of our problems. They are deep in our psyches, and they cause our liberal reforms to fail because they treat the symptoms and not the causes. Even humanistic education, which has always seemed so attractive, from the early writings of Holt to the later ones of Maslow, tacitly accepts the class system with its racism, its gross commercialism, its male chauvinism, its institutional violence, and its imperialistic wars, accepts them by failing to mention them, by pretending to be apolitical. End quote. In terse and dramatic words, Bateman told the audience assembled in Rochester that, quote, the channeling of children into the labor market and the concomitant domestication that justifies it is as much a part of America as mom and apple pie. But the myths weaken a little as the demythologizing proceeds from Watergate to the analysis of the sexist and racist content of curricula. And though our schools and colleges, our reformers and leaders, our journalists and curriculum developers seem committed to the preservation of the status quo, knowledge is available. It is our task, each one of us, to come to grips with what is known, to take a stand. End quote. The Demise of the Progressive Dream William J. Pilder, an Ohio State Ph.D. who had studied with Alexander Fraser and Paul Clore, read perhaps the most moving paper, entitled In the Stillness is the Dancing. In this address on Saturday morning, which concluded the three-day meeting, Pilder proclaimed that the progressive dream was over. He wrote, quote, The falling apart is a scaling down of expectations, the end of the progressive dream. The time is now to stop thinking and talking about using curricula in schools to accomplish major social change. The time is now to begin living the changes. End quote. Critical of the conference theme, Pilder expressed his skepticism that incorporating issues of consciousness and cultural revolution could revitalize either the sphere of theory or that of the school. 
quote, keeping curriculum theory together with consciousness and cultural revolution can only perpetuate the illusion that something important is being done if school curricula are related to the latest happenings available in the media, end quote. Pilder proceeded, quote, relating the self to itself is no easy matter in a culture that systematically erodes subjectivity. Part of the cure entails getting back to the body, relating self to self, end quote. The passage that Pilder envisaged included a middle way between uncritical acceptance of the status quo and exploration of so-called alternative realities. To travel such a passage requires faith. Pilder wrote, quote, The development of this faith dimension involves a journey inward and a subsequent struggle to integrate what is seen with how the self relates with consensus reality. Integration is constantly threatened by temptation toward withdrawal or identification, end quote a view which would be elaborated a decade later by Christopher Lash in his study of The Minimal Self. In a voice filled with emotion, Pilder concluded, quote, Here then is my desire as a professional. Human survival cannot depend on the social programs directed at present institutional structures. Personal consciousness development and subsequent cultural transformation cannot be programmed in mechanistic fashion. A curriculum for consciousness development and cultural change is a blatant contradiction. From the ashes of despair, a phoenix stirs, a single hope. The process that brings me to this loss of confidence in programs in professional reality, in views of all kinds, is a wave of transformation in my personal life and in the culture at large. This is my hope, a kind of zero point, a carefully held difference between the contraries of identification with professional expectations and withdrawal inside a self-process. I try to walk the tightrope between rigidity and chaos, and dance between the demons of professional identification and self-withdrawal. Quote. Pilder declined to continue walking such a tightrope. He departed the field within a year after reading this dramatic paper to study Jungian psychoanalysis in New York. The Rochester Conference both launched the reconceptualization and expressed its major themes, that is, to understand curriculum one must comprehend it as political, historical, and autobiographical text. While the Rochester Conference conveyed a sense of the intersections of these projects, indeed a sense of the fundamental interconnectedness of these theoretical interests, subsequent conferences revealed antagonisms not evident in May 1973. Reflecting on the conferences, Pinar indicated that, quote, almost as soon as the conferences began, internal divisions in the movement to reconceptualize the field appeared, end quote. The basic division occurred between, quote, Marxists of various orientations and interests and those who were interested less in macrostructural issues and more interested in the individual, end quote. This division took institutional form, as the Marxists tended to be associated primarily with the University of Wisconsin-Madison and with Teachers College, Columbia University, secondarily, while those interested primarily in the individual were associated with the University of Rochester and Ohio State University, secondarily. Identifying the organizers of the yearly conference reveals this institutional as well as thematic aspect of this division within the movement to reconceptualize the field of curriculum. Clore's depiction of the reconceptualization. In 1974, the conference was organized by Timothy Riordan, an Ohio State PhD, as was Pinar. It was held at Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio. Even by this early date, a discernible sense was clear that a movement was developing within the larger traditional field. Paul Clore, who had been involved in theorizing the thematic elements of the reconceptualization with Pinar, identified nine themes common to those who were coming to be known as reconceptualists. Clore listed the following reconceptualists' articles of faith. 1. A holistic, organic view is taken of humankind and his or her relation to nature. 2. The individual becomes the chief agent in the construction of knowledge. 
She, he is a cultural creator as well as a culture bearer. Three, the curriculum theorist draws heavily on his, her own experiential base as method. Four, curriculum theorizing recognizes as major resources the preconscious realms of experience. Five, the foundational roots of their theorizing lie in existential philosophy, phenomenology, and radical psychoanalysis, also drawing on humanistic reconceptualizations of such cognate fields as sociology, anthropology, and political science. Six, personal liberty and the attainment of higher levels of consciousness become central values in the curriculum process. Seven, diversity and pluralism are celebrated in both social ends and in the proposals projected to move toward those ends. Eight, reconceptualization of supporting political social operations is basic. And nine, new language forms are generated to translate fresh meanings, metaphors, for example, end quote. Clore was careful to note that these themes do not appear in toto in the work of any one individual. However, quote, they do appear time and time again as one examines a collection of reconceptualist writing, end quote. The 1975 conference was organized by University of Virginia professor Charles Beagle, also an Ohio State Ph.D. The major emphasis at this conference was on humanistic themes, including attention to autobiography and the individual, although political themes were just barely secondary. The 1976 conference was held at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, chaired by Alex Molnar, a Wisconsin Ph.D. At this conference, political and social themes predominated. Selected presentations, edited by Molnar and his colleague Jean Zahorek, were published by the Association for Supervision and Curriculum Development, ASCD, in 1977 as Curriculum Theory. In her foreword to the volume, ASCD President Elizabeth S. Randolph indicated the political nature of the work. Quote, Throughout the book, the contributors to curriculum theory challenge us to look at the real purpose of education, whether it is to maintain the social structure as it has existed or to improve the existing social structure by providing an educational environment that maximizes human potential. Several writers strongly urge us to re-examine the values implicit in our curriculum, to redefine these or other values and make them explicit. End quote. Critical and post-critical reconceptualists in addition to tensions that intrinsically belong to different positions, i.e., an emphasis upon self or society, additional tension was generated by the introduction Pinar wrote to his 1975 curriculum theorizing The Reconceptualists, in which he characterized political scholarship as critical and autobiographical scholarship postcritical, a characterization employed later to a somewhat different end by Philip Wexler. Pinar reflected on this development 13 years later. In that volume, the 1975 collection, I differentiated between critical and post-critical theorists, placing the Marxists in the former and those of us interested in the individual and related concerns in the latter. Of course, it was implicit the post-critical theorists were somehow more advanced, psychologically if not theoretically, and it takes little imagination to conjure up the response of Mike Apple in the ranks of Wisconsin and Columbia-trained Marxists. End quote. In a public letter to Pinar, William Burton argued that Pinar's definition of post-critical, i.e. a concern with transcendence and consciousness, a movement away from criticism of the status quo toward creation of a new order, obscured and minimized the importance and necessity of political criticism and action. Furthermore, Burton claimed that the existential phenomenology in which Pinar's work was situated represented an evasion of the political oppression of the 1970s. For Burton, Pinar's approach to curriculum represented a dead end. Pinar replied that all political acts require the self, and that recognition of self and one's place in the world becomes political, as self-understanding involves political and social understanding and action. This correspondence illustrates the disagreements and tensions between critical and post-critical scholars. Political scholarship dominated the 1977 conference, 
organized by Richard Hawthorne, a Wisconsin Ph.D., and held at Kent State University in Ohio. A Marxist Threat? In 1979, Pinar attempted to adjudicate the disputes over the critical designation by emphasizing the democratic and inclusive character of the movement. In effect, he invited the disenchanted Marxists to participate in the process of definition of the reconceptualization. Quote, Those reconceptualists who have refused to acknowledge the reality and promise of the reconceptualization have done so, in part, in protest of the process of being defined by another. Such protest is healthy, but its time is now past. The reconceptualization, I am suggesting, is fundamentally a dialectical relation among knowers, knowing, and the known. Its thematic character must and will be identified and constructed through the discourse and scholarship of its participants. To imagine it a finished product, a doctrine, is to miss its point. What is essential about the reconceptualization, as the literal definition of the word denotes, is its constant redefinition. Thus, the question that serves as a title to this paper, What is the Reconceptualization?, is a question that serves to invite your participating in its answering. For it is ourselves who shape our relations among each other, to colleagues in other disciplines, to the American public. The order of contribution to that public and its educational system is contingent in inescapable ways upon the quality of our own self-constitution. We cannot expect to meaningfully participate in the transformation of the nation and its educational institutions if we fail to authentically participate in the constitution and transformation of ourselves and our work. End quote. Pinar believed that both political and autobiographic discourses were central to this curriculum field that would emerge after the final collapse of the traditional field. The animosity of the Marxists toward the emphasis upon the individual raised fears that the reconceptualist movement itself was at stake. Pinar reflected. Quote, to whatever extent these conferences were a movement that would reshape curriculum studies theoretically and methodologically, they would not, if they were to survive, be viewed as completely or even primarily identified with Marxist orientations, however crucial these were to the theoretical development of the field. My concern was just how much space, to borrow a post-structuralist term, these analyses ought to occupy, at least on the conference program. End quote. JCT is launched. The 1978 conference returned to Rochester, however this time held at the Rochester Institute of Technology and chaired by Ronald Pagdam, a professor of fine arts and University of Rochester doctoral graduate. That same year, Pioneer began publication of the Journal of Curriculum Theorizing, now JCT, an interdisciplinary journal of curriculum studies, working closely with Janet L. Miller, who has remained as managing editor since 1978. Pinar retired as editor in 1985, replaced by William M. Reynolds. Joanne Pagano was named editor-in-chief of the renamed JCT in 1990. Pagano also chairs the yearly conference. In 1978, JCT editors undertook sponsorship of the annual conferences, organized during the early years by Miller and Pinar. From 1979 through 1982, they were held in northern Virginia at the Arleigh Conference Center. Afterward, the meetings were moved to the Bergamo Conference Center in Dayton, Ohio, supported in part by the University of Dayton. The 1994 conference was held at the Banff, Alberta, Canada, Center for the Arts. Apple's Rejection of Traditional Curriculum Questions Michael Apple would become one of the major figures in the movement to reconceptualize the field, although he disavowed any affiliation with the movement. However, it is indisputable that his work functioned to reconceptualize the field. In a statement introducing his essays collected in Curriculum Theorizing the Reconceptualists, Apple wrote, quote, I would like to begin by affirming the fact of being an educator, but by rejecting the comforting illusion that the types of questions that are commonly being asked by curriculum workers and other educators are fruitful. In fact, it seems to me that many of the modes of activity, the forms of language, the basic ideologies, even the things we do that supposedly help kids are in need of radical, 
in the sense of going to the very root of an issue, rethinking. For one thing, there is no educational poetry, no disciplined aesthetic sense. Yet we misconstrue education if we think of it as engineering, though part of it is, to be sure. Furthermore, education is ultimately a moral activity. As such, it cannot be understood without recourse to, and thus must be held accountable to, ethical principles and obligations of justice and responsibility to other persons. End quote. Apple continued by calling for research that examined curriculum underneath the bureaucratic surface of schools. In his prefatory statement were several notions that would thematize his research for the next 15 years, including ideology, instrumentality, the situatedness of curriculum in the larger society and community, at the same time the influence of his doctoral mentor at Teachers College, Columbia University, Duane E. Huebner, is evident in this passage, with its emphasis upon language. Quote, the usual questions that school people are so fond of asking, better management systems, behavioral objectives, pro and con, affective education, and so forth, are ultimately false issues. Their roots lie in ideological rules that are dialectically related to social and economic forms. For example, the dominant consciousness in advanced industrial societies is centered on a vulgar instrumentality, a logical structure that places at its foundation the search for certainty, order, the co-optation of significant social dissent, process product understanding, reasoning, therapy to treat surface symptoms rather than basic structural change, and the search for even more efficient instrumentality. Educational criticism, hence, becomes cultural, political, and economic criticism as well. Without the latter, the former is impotent. Second, the setting of educators within more basic social groups means that extensive investigations are required to demonstrate to other educators and a concerned citizenry the concrete linkages between personal, social, and economic injustice in education's models of inquiry, of talking about schooling, of helping children, and so forth. Here I am not speaking of new ways of talking, but, if I may borrow from Wittgenstein, of new forms of life, new ways of being with students, with each other. New ways of talk can only emerge with students, with each other. New ways of talk can only emerge from the dialectic of language and the generation of altered community, and this can only be generated if the negativity of the existing community is shown. End quote. Marx is a source of curriculum theory. Finally, in this 1975 autobiographical statement, Apple pointed to Marx as the source for what he termed a strategic curriculum theory. He wrote, quote, I must reject any false posturing of certainty. What we can do is be guided by an insight of Marx in arguing that specific steps will become clearer only when the ways are illuminated that institutions now function to deny freedom, to destroy or degrade meaning, to unduly dominate the intersubjective and intrasubjective relations of a society. From this negation can emerge a positive vision. One has no choice but to be committed. End quote. Students' rights. In addition to Bateman and Apple, John Stephen Mann and Alex Molnar advanced a view of curriculum as political, focusing on students' rights. Molnar reflected on both that interest and Mann's influence in his own political movement toward Marxism. Quote, While I was working with Jim McDonald, I got involved with ASCD and the Radical Caucus. My contact with the caucus and my friendship with Steve Mann, more than anything else, challenged the humanistic orientation of my thought. Discussions, arguments, criticism, and reflection helped me make connections between what I had read of Mao, what I was learning with Jim, and my reality as an educator. This process resulted in my rejection of the flabby humanism that has become so characteristic in the dialogue and practice of many educators. On Students' Rights is an experimental piece that, while fundamentally sound, is flawed in at least two aspects. First, like a good deal of analysis referenced in Marxism, Leninism, it fails to account for the significance of the spiritual dimension in human affairs. Secondly, it does not clearly avoid the trap of advocating social change through the activities of schools. Perhaps everything I write is an experiment. 
an attempt to understand better who I am and what my commitments must be. End quote. Parenthetically, Molnar would achieve public visibility briefly during 1989 when he appeared several times on the cable news network, CNN, expressing opposition to the American war against Iraq. He has been less visible in the curriculum field. Neo-Marxist Curriculum Theory, Not Social Reconstructionism Mann, who would soon leave the curriculum field to work in the labor movement, and Molnar argued that schools refused to sanction students' political struggle for social justice. Quote, we assert that it is both the right and responsibility of young people, as citizens and as students, to study and engage in progressive social action as part of their education, end quote. Distinguishing their view from the social reconstructionism associated with Counts, Rugg, and Bremeld, Mann and Molnar asserted that, quote, social reconstructionists fail to recognize that oppression and exploitation are a fundamental characteristic of class structure in the United States and cannot be altered by tinkering with the schools, end quote. They concluded, Quote, the talk of students' rights and responsibilities, as we have, is to see the teacher as an organizer who must identify allies among his fellow teachers, the students, and community members to develop a program organized around issues specific to a situation, guided by the principles of dialectical analysis. End quote. To speak of organizing and principles of dialectical analysis is, of course, familiar Marxist discourse. And Counts and Rugg, but not Bermeld, distanced themselves from Marxism. In the 1970s, political scholars would not distance themselves from Marxism. Indeed, they would embrace it. In Canada, at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Max van Manen and Ted Aoki were developing a phenomenological program of studies in curriculum and pedagogy. In 1979, Aoki published a widely read monograph which functioned to support the movement to reconceptualize curriculum studies in North America. Entitled, Toward a Curriculum in a New Key, Aoki's paper called for a multi-perspectival approach to curriculum development and evaluation. Quote, we need to seek out new orientation that allows us to free ourselves of the tunnel vision effect of monodimensionality, end quote. Commenting on developments in the American scene, Aoki observed, quote, in curriculum inquiry, there is an array of orientations. First, there is the empirical analytic in which explanatory and technical knowledge is sought. This research mode is familiar to us as science. Second, there is the situational interpretive inquiry orientation in which research is conceived as a search for meaning. Such an account is called phenomenological description. Third, there is a critical inquiry orientation. End quote. Aoki aligned himself with the second orientation, which he and Van Manen would help develop with their students into a major contemporary discourse. See Chapter 8. Also in this 1979 monograph, Aoki responded to Schwab's challenge to the curriculum field. As did Surratt at the Rochester Conference, Aoki criticized Schwab's apparent atheoretical posture which Schwab himself would correct in his final and fourth paper, published in 1983. Aoki's phenomenological orientation was clear when he wrote, quote, I concur with him, Schwab, that the practical day-to-day -day world of curriculum development merits intensive attention. I feel, however, that merely moving to the practical is not sufficiently fundamental. An authentic radical departure calls for not only a lateral shift to the practical, but also a vertical shift that leads us to a deeper understanding of the program developer's theoretic stance, end quote. Aoki's embrace of a perspective that was at once theoretical and practical would anticipate the reconceptualized field of the 1990s. Indeed, Aoki continues in 1993 to be a pivotal figure in the field, seven years after his retirement. Now invited to teach part-time at various universities, including the universities of Lethbridge, Calgary, Victoria, British Columbia, Alberta, and Louisiana State University, among others, 
and working with the British Columbia Teachers Federation, Aoki remains a theorist and pedagogue of subtle brilliance and international importance. His accomplishment has been recently recognized by the awarding of honorary doctorates by the Universities of Alberta, Lethbridge, and British Columbia, an honor few curriculum theorists have enjoyed. Linking theory with institutional practice, participating in various conferences, and instrumental in planning the 1994 Bergamo at Banff Conference, and intellectually moving into post-structuralism without relinquishing his sophisticated phenomenology. As we will see in chapters 8 and 9, there are through lines from phenomenology to post-structuralism. The thematic characteristics of the American reconceptualization were not limited to the North American continent. Curriculum theory was just underway in earnest in the United Kingdom and Australia. As Jackson and others would observe, scholarship in the United Kingdom, France, and Germany provided sources for American neo-Marxist scholarship. Scholarship in Holland, France, and Germany provided sources for the development of phenomenology. In the Nordic countries, a similar movement was evident. Freire's radical pedagogical work in Brazil a decade earlier would inspire hundreds of scholars worldwide to link literacy, culture, and politics. We examine the situation in Latin America in Chapter 14, Understanding Curriculum as International Text.